Hello and welcome to a Latrobe Asia podcast. Recently, Latrobe Asia's Executive Director, Professor Nick Bisley, co-authored a report with Dr. Brendan Taylor of ANU, titled Conflict in the East China Sea, Would ANSYS Apply? The premise of the report is that little attention has been paid to the possible political ramifications for Australia from conflict in the East China Seas, which could stem from our alliance obligations with the US. You can read the report on Latrobe Asia's website, which is at latrobe.edu.au forward slash Asia. Nick Beasley gave a talk at the launch of the report, and we bring you this now. Here's Nick. The report attempts to address uh, three specific questions, or rather attempts to answer three particular questions about the broad context in which putative conflict between Japan and China uh, might trigger or dr- trigger ANZUS or draw Australia in uh, to a, a larger conflict. Uh, the first question is, is set out clearly in the subtitle, what does the alliance commit Australia to in the, in the case of uh, a conflict in the East China Sea? What are our obligations under the ANZUS agreement? What is the political com- uh, content of the alliance and what might it mean? Uh, the answer to the question, does ANZUS apply, whether it's to the East China Sea, whether it's Taiwan, or any other contingency in uh, the region, always begins with a, it depends. Uh, and that's to say, the exact nature of the circumstances in which conflict would play out will determine the extent or nature of the kind of uh, response Australia would follow in any eventuality. And so the second thing we sought to do in the report is to imagine how conflict might actually occur. The devil is, in this case, very much in the detail, precisely what was to occur, who was to do what to whom, under what circumstances, under what time frame, and viewed by whom, we think is is absolutely vital to determining the extent to which Australia would or would not be drawn into something. And so, in the report, we attempt to think through three three distinct hypothetical scenarios in which this may play out. Uh, The third thing we sought to do was to uh, determine what could be done to mitigate the risk and to manage these crises. Uh, The underlying assumption of the report is that conflict in the East China Sea is a very real risk. It is something that we think is very plausible. This is not an imaginary risk. This is not something that might occur in some dim and distant future when we've all learnt not to get along. Um, We think the the risk profile of this particular part of East Asia is very, very, very high. Indeed, I think we start with the proposition that when you cast your eye across the region and think where could conflict, big, nasty, high-intensity war break out, we're used to the Korean Peninsula, we're used to Taiwan being at the top of those, or the ones that first come to mind. I think to that we do need to add the East China Sea as a flashpoint, that's to say a place in which a spark could turn, uh, could turn uh, into a significant conflagration. Uh, what I want to do in my remarks, and I will try to keep them brief, that's a famous academic line, I will try to keep myself brief, uh, is talk, talk through some of the main points that we make. Uh, we don't want to deprive you of the pleasure of reading it in its entirety, uh, so I won't give you the blow-by-blow, blow, and also we want to draw out some of the detail in the discussion and to have uh, an interaction with, with those of you good enough to come. Uh, but I'll say a few things firstly about ANZUS and the Alliance, and then talk a little bit about conflict and its possibilities, and then finish by giving you some sense of what we think can be done to, as I said, mitigate risk and to manage these crises. So to begin with ANZUS, um, those of you who know your chapter and verse of ANZUS, uh, and particularly those of you who know its history, will know that ANZUS was written 
deliberately with ambiguity in mind. Uh, although Percy Spender and Australian political elites uh, in the post-war period actually sought a much stronger commitment in ANZUS, that's to say uh, Spender and co. wanted a NATO-style Article 5 trigger, that's to say each member of the alliance would treat an attack on one as if it were an attack on themselves, this was not forthcoming. And the text, Article 4, is the, the key operative clause, um, provides, I think, a de very deliberately room for manoeuvre for the parties. And it was written, at, oddly enough, at the time, uh, because America didn't want tripwires across the Pacific. It didn't want to become embroiled uh, in what, in po the post-war period, seemed to be very much a, 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 a quite, uh, not febrile, but quite a volatile environment. So it wanted to be able to manage the terms of its engagement with Asia, and so it didn't agree to terms in any of its alliances with its partners in the post-World War, post -World War II era with anything like the strength of commitment that is key to uh, the NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty. It was also put to the Australian negotiators, actually, that uh, if language like that was included in the text, then the text was unlikely to make it off the Senate floor. Now, whether that was in fact true or not, we're not sure, but it's a nice kind of diplomatic... Uh, uh, reflections to say, you know, we, we would love to give you a strong commitment, but the Senate won't let us, so you're getting a weak one. So it's a, it, exactly what's going on there is, is open for interpretation. But the key point, I think, is that there is no automatic trigger either for any of the parties, nor is there a trigger for specific action. Because if, you, if you think about Article 5 of NATO, an attack on one, it must be considered as an attack on all. That implies a certain kind of response, whereas at, um, Article 4 of ANZUS provides scope both in terms of reaction and action. So I think for the, con for the concerns of, of this particular uh, putative or hypothetical contest, I think the lack of an automatic trigger is, is a, and the, it provides the opening for key diplomatic manoeuvring to manage response and, uh, sorry, to manage diplomatic response and strategic response to uh, a possible conflict. So, the text of ANZUS gives you room, but ANZUS, I think, and it's really important to emphasise that the alliance relationship begins with ANZUS treaty, but it does not end with it. In fact, in some respects, the, pol the substantive political relationship, which gives sort of flesh to the, to, to the link between Australia and, and the US, is a lot more than the text of the treaty. In fact, in some respects, what we have been doing to give the alliance relationship life over the past 20 or 30 years, I think, provides Australia with less room for manoeuvre, one could argue, than the basic text of the treaty. So if you want to understand what kind of obligations Australia has, you're actually much better served not necessarily looking, passing the, the text of the treaty in a kind of Jesuitical sense of really fine textual analysis, but instead looking at what the, what the political content of the relationship actually is. And I think it's here where we see us over the past, really over the past um, 12 or 13 years, that the relationship has become very, very close between Australia and Washington, uh, sorry, between Australia and the United States, uh, that when you're thinking through what expectations our alliance partner has of us, not what does the text say, but what do they actually think we're going to do, what sort of political commitments have we made, I think you see it a much stronger commitment that's developed over the past uh, 12 years or so. Uh, and if you look back over the past and think what expectations might Washington have and you look at what we say, 
what we buy in terms of our defence, how we organise our defence force, where, where and how we have chosen to respond to requests for support, what our track record is. And then if you look at the language that we've been using to describe the purpose of the alliance, what is it for? Uh, it is not just an alliance that is for the defence of Australian interests, the defence of American security interests, narrowly conceived. It's now thought of publicly and I think understood instinctively as something that's about regional security as well as about the specific security interests uh, that the two parties have. As a result of that, I think for Australia, the risks of being caught up in a conflict in the East China Sea have gone up because of the ways in which we have signalled our commitment to a regional conception of the alliance and our duties and obligations under that. That's not to say that we've got an automatic trigger, but I think the risks, because of the, what we've been doing and how we have been thinking about the alliance, is much greater than it was. The other point I'd want to, I'd want to make uh, or draw out from the report to, to, to put to you is that generally when people think about the alliance and possible conflicts, we only ever think of one side. That's the entrapment risk, the possibilities of Australia being caught up in a conflict it might otherwise have avoided. But there's another side to the alliance, and in fact it was one of the big motivating forces for having an alliance relationship with the United States, and that is alliances give you opportunities. They give you an opportunity to influence. Uh, and it was a huge motivating force in the post-World War period where Australian policymakers had experienced basically a generation of being on entirely out in the cold in terms of big strategic decisions for which they had to pay a price. And that ANZUS gave you a formal way in, even if you're certainly a small voice at a very large table. And I think when we're thinking through what ANZUS means for us, what our alliance relationship with the United States means for a possible conflict, then the opportunity to shape expectations, to shape decisions and to shape responses is something there that we mustn't forget. So to turn to the questions of conflict, um, I think for Australia, or sorry, when I say I, I mean Brendan and I, <laughs> sounding very um, authorial there, uh, but when we were thinking about the conflict, I think Everyone in the region has a stake in the East China Sea conflict for, for, for pretty obvious reasons that you're talking about the big three clashing, potentially. Asia's big three, the three of three the top four world economies. This is, this is a, everyone's got skin in this game. But I think for Australia in particular, we do have a distinctive angle on this conflict. In fact, I think of the regional parties, uh, so the, re the regional states, we are the, the player that has probably more at stake than any other in this one. And we do for a couple of reasons. Most obviously, our economic interests. Japan, China, the United States are our number one trading partners, one, two, and three. The exact order shifts around a little bit. Uh, they're also two of our top three investors, uh, and China's investment in Australia is on the rise. It's top 10, but it's been moving up. Uh, but economic interest is only one part of it. As I mentioned earlier, I think the tightening of the alliance relationship and its broadening out to include this regional conception, I think, gives us a stake in this that is distinctive uh, from many others. And then the third component is something uh, that's really only become evident in the past 12 months or so, and that is the very, very strong relationship that we now have with Japan in areas of security. It's been building up over you know, a long period of time, since 2007, the textual basis of our relationship. There's now four security-related uh, tr uh, agreements that have been signed between the two. And, of course, it's well discussed in public about the possibilities that we'll be buying submarines from Japan. But I think 
that political and strategic link that we now have with Tokyo that has been very, very publicly and very deliberately ramped up by the current government, I think adds a dimension to the way in which... Sorry, adds a dimension of complexity to the environment in which Australia finds itself. There's plenty of positives to it, but if you're sitting back quietly and thinking... Sorry, in the cold light of day, thinking, what kind of risks does Australia face? What are the possibilities of it being brought into some conflict in this area? The link with Tokyo adds a complexity to things that didn't used to be there. So what, what are the scenarios that we paint out? Uh, and in this, Brendan and I had a sort of a, a, good degree, a good degree of fun, actually, being doing something you don't normally do as an academic, which is sort of gaze in the crystal ball and imagine how the world might actually look. Uh, those, of us, those of you who mark students' work and, and provide advice to students, we're doing precisely what we tell students they can't do, which is to, to do research on the future. Uh, so it was, it, it, we, we tapped into the sort of creative sides of the brain, which academia tends to... to um, uh, whack down until it's somewhat dull. Uh, so, but what we tr- sought to do was to draw out three different dimensions of conflict and looking at different ways in which conflict may play out to draw attention to the different key variables on which A, escalation could occur. So we know that these two, Japan and China, bump into each other very, very regularly. And so far it hasn't spiralled out of control. What are the circumstances in which this friction becomes conflagration? Uh, and we wanted to look at differing ways in which this may play out, and we also wanted it to be plausible. We didn't want to get into the, and, you know, the sort of you know, utterly implausible in which all of you would read it and go, forget, this is completely not going to happen, uh, and cast it, out of the, cast it out. And so what we did very early on was actually exclude the possibilities, intriguing though they are, of the sort of Falkland-style assertiveness, that's to say either... China decides, right, we need the short, sharp war, what I, I took to call the Beijing taxi driver's war, where they go, right, we can teach these Japanese. We think that's actually probably not particularly likely over the next five years. We wanted to find things that were plausible and realistic over the short to medium term. And what we landed on uh, were, one, looking at an air-based incident, one based at sea, and one involving non-state actors. Uh, The first involved a situation in which basically China hardens up the rules of engagement within its newly established air defence identification zone. Confusion around this and a whole range of domestic circumstances lead to a very, very tense environment in which an aerial clash leads to the downing of aircraft on both sides. The second scenario involves a new trilateral military exercise between Australia the United States and, and Japan. It's motivated by an America, a new American president seeking to underline and reinforce American presence and power in the Pacific. So we named the exercise Pacific Power. Uh, and there's an accident that occurs involving um, Japanese, a Chinese submarine accidentally surfacing and hitting an American vessel stationed, oh, sorry, based on the vessel where a number of Australian uh, service personnel. So we are directly involved in ADF personnel on the ship. And the third uh, is, an accident, is an incident that begins with a commercial cruise off uh, the disputed territories. Uh, by, it's a Chinese commercial cruising vessel uh, in which uh, there is a clash between the Japanese Coast Guard, the cruising vessel, that leads through circumstances which don't have time to get into detail to the planting of a flag on the islands, uh, a standoff between the Japanese Coast Guard and 
maritime law enforcement vessels from China and what looks to be coming from that, a blockade of the islands by um, the Japanese self-defence force, uh, maritime self-defence force. So they're the scenarios. Um, and what we did with these is stop them at the point at which Australia would be faced with a dilemma of what it would do and how it would react. We didn't turn, we didn't dial it up to 11 and have the firing begin, because as all of you know, who know, all of you in the policy world will know, you have to begin to make decisions instantaneously when events transpire in these ways. It's not just there is a declaration of war, then what do we do? And we wanted to draw out these differing dimensions. Uh, based on these hypothetical conf uh, conflict scenarios, what did, this then got us to a point where we're thinking, well, what are the key factors that we think are likely to escalate clashes into something more, uh, uh, so much more dangerous, both for the region and for the, the parties directly involved? And there's a number of things that I think stood out to us as being points that could be that, that A, we need to manage, and some, and some of which we can't manage, but on which potential conflict, I think, turns quite dramatically. The first and most significant is nationalism, particularly the, the nationalist sentiment in Japan and China around these territories, and the ability or inability of parties on both sides to control and respond to and manage nationalist sentiment. The second source of risk is credibility, in particular, I think, the concerns about American credibility, in particular, concerns America might have about its credibility. That's to say, how America might respond to a situation, a conflict situation, particularly how it may respond and ask its allies for help, is going to be very heavily shaped by the sense that it does or does not need to reinforce the credibility of its commitments. The third is misjudgment. Uh, we know that, that all parties want to avoid conflict, but we also know that Bad judgments and bad decisions and mistakes uh, are a fact of life in every walk of life that we, uh, in every walk of human endeavour. Uh, and misunderstanding, misjudgments, miscalculations, I think, are in when you've got something as high intensity as this that's got political weight uh, dialed into it uh, that we need to um, that we need to focus on very clearly. And it's something about which we can, uh, it's something which we can do something about. And finally. Uh, the other, I think, real risk is if the leaders, particularly if we're talking about Xi Jinping and uh, Prime Minister Abe, is if the leaders feel that they are boxed in, if the leaders feel that they are cornered and that the only way out politically from where they are is conflict, then because of the particular characteristics of these administrations, these governments and these personalities at the top, then conflict is a very real possibility. Added to this, I think, is, is some... Other factors that are relatively new to, to conflict in the region, and this is things like YouTube, instant, the 24-hour news cycle, instantaneous communication, so that if a clash happens, we will know about it very, very quickly. And this will add a layer of another layer of complexity to decision-making because pressure will be put on political decision-makers one way or another, particularly if each is trying to put the label of antagonist on the other. So this, uh, I guess, tech this technological strand, I think, is a, is a new component and one which is, is um, making the management of these conflicts quite challenging. I'll finish just saying a few really quick things about what can be done, uh, and other parts of it we'll draw out in our discussion. Uh, 
I think the first thing that can be done is we need to improve communication across all of the parties involved in the dispute. We need to be clear about what policy positions are. We need to be really clear about what red lines are. And we, really, and we all need to be very clear about what the consequences are of interaction. I think this, this sort of studied ambiguity about so much of what goes on in Asia, not just in the East China Sea, the South China Sea and other parts, is actually very unhelpful to managing these crises. Secondly, in, relate, in, in, in a related vein, uh, we need to establish much better, or we need, in fact, establish in the first instance, and then have working much better crisis management systems. Uh, one of the problems at the moment is that there's not a lot of obvious kind of policy off-ramps if things escalate. We, and as many of you know in the diplomatic game, you know, the business of diplomacy is the old chestnut, well, not old chestnut, a good old piece of insight is building, you know, what do diplomats do? They build ladders for other people to climb. And what we need to do with this conflict is provide ways in which the protagonists can de-escalate the situation. Now, whether this is strengthening uh, the agreement, the Q's uh, agreement, the, I've just gone blank, the acronym stands for, I've just gone completely blank. The Convention on Unanticipated uh, Events at Sea. So, uh, so this is, a, this is a, a voluntary code of conduct, basically, uh, this that we think is not the only one, but it is a way in which uh, we could establish crisis management mechanisms uh, that could provide all of the parties with ways out of um, out of their uh, out of situations in which escalation is occurring. And then finally, most importantly, uh, we need long-term dispute settlement system. These islands are in dispute, uh, and it doesn't help us or anyone in the region if we pretend that they're not. Uh, and Australia is, I think, is actually uniquely well placed to help all of our, all of the parties to clarify communication around this. We have a uniquely good relationship with Tokyo, and one of the things we could do is begin to talk to Tokyo and help Tokyo convince and understand and put itself in a position in which it can accept that there is a dispute and that its claims are not as strong as it implies, um, and that some sort of mutually agreeable compromise on the status of these islands can and should be reached.